We are sons. We are daughters. We are witnesses. Citizens of heaven. The temple. Christ's ambassadors. Worshippers. God's workmanship. We are more than conquerors. We are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. We are. We are. We are. One. 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 We are. We are. We are. Well, we are the New Life Sunday Night Campus, and uh, if you went this morning, you got the privilege of hearing from Ron Luce, and if you didn't go this morning, I would recommend uh, getting that podcast. I heard it was excellent. Um, tonight, we, we're going to continue in that same series that we've been doing on Sunday mornings, the We Are series, uh, but we're going to do one that, that, uh, that Ron did not cover this morning. He kind of had uh, carte blanche, you know, freedom to do his own talk, which was wonderful. Uh, but before we dive into this talk tonight, I wanted you to hear from Karen Huggins. Baron and Carrie have been here since week one. Uh, they've been at New Life forever. I mean, you know. But, um, but Karen just got back from a trip um, to, to Germany briefly, but then they spent a lot of time in Cairo and in Egypt, and it was an amazing um, adult missions trip with, with the New Life women. So I wanted Karen to just come and share, tell us a little bit about it, and, uh, and then, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll go on from there. Karen Huggins, everybody. Here you can come up. Thanks for letting me share tonight. Um, we, the average age of our team, we had six women, was 40, and that's because we had Michelle Betty with us, who was 31, and she was my roommate. So God's grace was all over this trip. Um, we arrived in Egypt, and about eight hours later, we had a van uh, packed with blankets, taking it to a Sudanese village. There's a huge Sudanese population in Egypt, 1.5 million that have come, uh, refugees, and their life is, as you can imagine, is so difficult there. So we were able to minister at a women's meeting on that Friday night. But as we were driving towards the uh, uh, village where they are, um, the Egyptian police stopped us, and we thought, we've only been here eight hours, and we're going to get arrested already. And Rion was like, yeah, you know, that'd be awesome, you know. So anyway, we were able to minister uh, to the women that night, and we had men start coming in towards the end of our meeting that night. Um, the next day, uh, we were able to have an orientation with the church that New Life is partnering with in Cairo, Egypt, Casa El Debarra. They're a church of about 6,000. They're the largest evangelical church in the Middle East, and they are reaching out to the Arab world. And um, through our global ministries department, we're partnering with them uh, to come alongside them, to serve them uh, in any way that we can to see uh, their out outreach into the Arab uh, world spread. Uh, the next day, uh, we left on a, a six-hour van trip out into the desert area of uh, Egypt to visit a village called Rita, and uh, there are three villages that this church sponsors, the children, it's kind of like a compassion uh, type of thing, and they're reaching out to this village, these villages, there are eight or nine that they're involved in different ministries with, and there are 15,000 unreached villages in Upper Egypt, which is actually south of Cairo. And so we had the opportunity to go into homes there. The people uh, live, like, except for having a little bit of electricity into their homes, they, have, um, uh, they live on dirt floors, two rooms, one room for the animals, one room for the parents and kids to sleep. The uh, men are mostly farmers, work, work out in the fields, and make an equivalent of about 8 or $10 a month to support their families there. 
And uh, it was just such a touching time for us to go into the homes. We use these Evangel Cubes. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I had never used one before to tell the story of the gospel to people. We had uh, interpreters, uh, Arab, uh, Arabic interpreters with us. We went out into to teams uh, throughout the community. And we actually had police following us uh, from Cairo to this area a pickup truck in front of us and a pickup truck behind us, our van. And we felt very safe there. It was great. And we got into the village, and they were there to protect the foreigners, uh, which uh, was our team. And we got into the village, and these guys in turbans and robes had their big rifles, and they were following us around. And I was thinking, wow, this is great. They're even protecting us in the village. And then uh, our interpreter, who's a young man, young college-age man there, said, no, no, these are Muslim men who are making sure you don't go to Muslim homes. And so I hated to think if we'd made a mistake and walked in the wrong house. But we were very well uh, supervised. But we went in, we prayed, <laughs> you know, which was good. It was a very safe place to go. And so if any of you, you know, have a heart for the Arab world and, and want to go on a mission trip... It was probably the best planned trip I've ever been on, mission or otherwise. And we felt very safe there and very protected by uh, the people from Casa El Dabara. Uh, we were able to lay hands on women. 70 to 80% of the women and children in these villages are abused. And so we were able to give them a soft touch and a touch from the Lord. And the Holy Spirit just showed up, gave us words uh, for the for the families that we were visiting with, the children, the men, and not because we were so great, because we worship a great God, Amen. and uh, we were just so blessed. And uh, the uh, we had a medical mission clinic the next day, and there was just a press of people there. I don't know how else to explain it. You know, it was almost like a riot. They were just trying to get their kids in to see the doctors and the nurses that came from this church uh, to minister in those villages. And um, there's a couple of young men, Magid, who is a young pastor there who has such a heart for the women and children. Uh, He's an Egyptian. And, you know, they're just going into the homes, ministering to the women and to the children and trying to teach the men. And I know we have some great fathers, young and old, in this audience. What a great uh, mission opportunity to go over there and just share with these men uh, the father heart of God. And uh, we didn't see many men in the homes when we went in to pray uh, for them, but we did see some. And uh, God's just breaking these men's heart uh, for the Lord and for their families. And um, so that was a very precious time there. And Casa El Debarro, um, the pastor, we were able to speak with the pastor, and somebody else had told us this. He didn't share this. He's a very humble man, and he's been in that. Um, he's in, uh, in his 60s or 70s, but he said, um, uh, just shared some precious things that that church is doing, and then some of his staff shared with us that his life has been threatened. They're, you know, the biggest evangelical church in the Middle East, the only one there in Cairo, Egypt, and they've threatened his life, and he said, you come after me and kill me, a hundred more will come just like me. And they said, well, we're going to burn down your church. He said, burn down my church and we'll build a bigger church, you Mm. know. And so they have no fear Mm. of man. Uh, That church is outside the walls. They are all over Cairo. And the Christians there are very persecuted. It's 90% Muslim. And in regards to jobs and into even getting into schools, universities, and things like that. But some of the most precious times were uh, worshiping in Arabic 
with the children. I mean, the children just raising their hands and laying their hands on people. And mm. that was just a very precious time in Egypt. Then we went to Germany to visit um, our church. We're partnering with there called Church on the Way. And actually their pastor, Wolfhart Margies, is very much the Jack Hayford of Germany. And they, they have the largest evangelical church in Germany and it's 600 people, and they are reaching uh, Europe for the Lord. And, you know, it was just such a special time to be there with them, with their women. We did a Women's Day conference for, and 200 women showed up, and we were able to minister, and we were ministered to Hmm. by these folks that are just stepping out and, and going for God. So I would just love to see, you could even have a Sunday night mission trip, but love to see uh, as many of you as possible get involved in the in the what New Life is doing with missions. We have three great leaders in that Global Ministries Department, and their heart is that everybody here at New Life have some kind of mission experience. Yeah. So go visit their office awesome. or get online and look at what's going on here. And uh, just thank you for being such a great body that mm. we could go out from this body and uh, mm. and share the gospel with those people there. Thank it's you. awesome. Thank you, Karen. Here. Um, Evan Martin's here. Evan, just wave your, stand up and give everybody a wave. Uh, Evan is one of the Global Ministries pastors, and we didn't talk about this, but, you know, th- when you hear stories like that, it's hard not to get inspired, you know, and um, uh, it, it just goes to show that there's, never, there's not a, an ideal sort of season of life or stage of life for going. You can go at various stages of life, and, uh, and it can be wonderful. So Evan's here if you want to talk to him. There are trips that they're planning for next year. All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the scriptures together tonight. Father, thank you for all that you're doing all around the world. It is amazing that we can say that we are part of your kingdom, and your kingdom is advancing. And it's advancing in ways that are not always obvious, um, very um, subversive, But yet it spreads, and we thank you that we get to be part of it. We thank you that we get to be called by your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so we're in this We Are series, and tonight we're we're tackling the subject, We Are Justified. And I I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks because last week we talked about We Are Branches, and we had this discussion about how so much of this this life with God, this fruit-bearing thing, is about the vine and the gardener, that the bulk of this work or this responsibility rests on God and rests on the fact that Christ in us is the hope of glory and all of that. And, and then about a month ago in October, we talked about how we are God's workmanship. And again, the emphasis there was this, this idea that, look, it is God that's working, it's God that's molding, and he's already begun his work in us. But I think sometimes when we talk about all this stuff, the question arises, okay, but what does that mean in terms of salvation? How does that fit in with salvation? I grew up in, in Malaysia, and Christianity is not the dominant religion in Malaysia. It's not quite the extreme environment that you described in Egypt and in Cairo, Karen. But, it, 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 you know, we, there's about 14% of the population that, that um, are, are Christians. And, uh, and I remember as a kid, you know, growing up in this Christian home and, and responding, though, to every altar call that I was at in church. And I remember from the time of being six years old, you know, my mom, you know, went through the description and all this stuff and explained to me what sin was and why Jesus had to die. And I thought, oh, yes, I was so moved by it. And I was kind of one of those tender-hearted kids that, you know, if my, if my parents just looked at me with a stern look, I'd start, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
But uh, so every time I, I was at church a lot and I was at a lot of altar calls and I heard a lot of altar calls that went something like this. Well, if you got hit by a truck tonight, do you know where you'd go? And I don't know why it's always that. But it's all, and that's the universal, you know, Malaysia, America, we all give the same altar calls. But I heard that a number of times, and I responded to just about every one of them, you know. I think by the time I was 10 years old, I got saved at least 300 different times. I don't know. But I, it just got me. It was, okay, how do I know? What if, you know, what if? Yeah, I know, I have kind of been a bad kid, you know. And somewhere in the back of our minds, we sort of think that salvation is something precarious, that you can lose it like you lose your wallet or your keys or your cell phone, you know? At least you can call your cell phone. What do you call when you lose your salvation, you know? And, 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 I, and we have this, this, this mentality or this maybe underlying presupposition that, look, it, it's, it's this very, it, everything is pretty precarious, and look, be careful not to do that. If you do that, it might, you might end up in that other place we don't talk about with, you know, flames and stuff. And maybe you've never really said it this way, but, but once in a while, the question gets posed or it rises in your heart and it goes something like this. Okay, so what if you sin and you die before you get to repent? Where are you going? And what if, worse yet, you've had a few days to repent, but you didn't, and then you died? And then where are you going? And, and there's this discussion of, okay, listen... Uh, maybe salvation, maybe the fruit-bearing thing, and maybe we are branches. Okay, maybe that has to do with Christ being the vine and the Father being the gardener. But what about my works? And don't my works matter? And, and, and in what place does this all fit? Part of the confusion sometimes when we talk about this word salvation or, or saved is in the scriptures we run across at least three of the different oh, verses that, that relate to the three different tenses. They're verses that describe our salvation as something in the past. We have been saved by grace. You have been saved through faith and not if you wait. No, we know that. Have been. Yes, I are. You know, we'll go up to someone. Hey, have you been born again? We know. It's a past event, right? But then we get kind of worried because then we think, well, but yeah, but what about that one where it says working out our salvation in fear and trembling? Now, I'm not an English expert, you say, but that sounds like present continuous. And what about that and being saved? And then what about those verses where it says, well, he he who endures to the end shall be saved. What do you mean? You mean I'm, I'm not there yet? Is there a chance that it could all go haywire? And these are questions that if maybe we've never asked, we've at least, we at least know people who wrestle with this stuff. And it seems odd that the very thing that is at the heart of what we believe about Christ and his work is sometimes surrounded by this cloud of confusion. We say, well, which is it? And how does this fit? And what do we do with this? So tonight, to, to give us this framework, we're going to dive into a little bit of theology. Is that Okay. Is that all right? Okay. Um, and we'll start with this. All three tenses are used in the New Testament about the word saved or about our salvation. And we'll put this up for you. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This we'd call justification. We have been saved. And this is maybe a helpful way to think about it. Justification. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. From the payment, the punishment, the penalty. And then you have a verse like 1 Corinthians 1.18 that says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, those, uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
And then that verse in Philippians 2.12 that I referenced earlier. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as, in, uh, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sort of this present continuous. The word that we like to use to designate this is this word sanctification. And maybe a helpful way to think about this is sanctification is where we are being saved from the power of sin. If justification is this thing where we, are, we have been saved from the penalty, from the punishment of sin, then the sanctification process, this process of becoming like Christ, is the place where we are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. This is why so many times in Romans, Paul writes things like, okay, now look, don't let sin reign in your bodies. In other words, look, when you weren't in Christ, you didn't have a choice, That was your only choice, which, by the way, is why it's so funny that as Christians we spend so much energy cursing the darkness for being dark. It's all they can do. The best a sinner can do is sin. But Paul talks about now, okay, look, we've got this other option, so now don't let sin reign. We're being saved from the power of sin at work in us. We don't have to give in to this. And then there's verses like Romans 5, verse 9 that say, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We read that earlier. In Romans 13, 11, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Oh, which is it? Why is it nearer? I thought I already had it locked up. Passport stamped for heaven. Which one? This is the word that, that, that often is used to designate this sense or this aspect of salvation is the word glorification, which means we've yet to been, we are yet to be saved from the presence of sin. Until the day that we, are, we, we see Christ and we become like him, until the day when the heavens and the earth are renewed and made new and everything is set right, we are still surrounded by the presence of sin. It's all around us. It's around us at work. It's around us in our schools. It's around us on the telly TV. It's around us all the time, everywhere we look. And in some ways, when we work to say, look, I want to get to this place where there's nothing sinful around me. Cleanse my house of all sinfuls. I don't want anything sinful around me. Got kind of bad news. We're not going to get there yet now if you think about it okay you're like wow you know writing down notes justification means that we have been saved from the penalty of sin sanctification means that we are being saved from the power of sin at work in us and glorification is this thing we look forward to where we will be saved from the presence of sin wow that's awesome man great okay cool the trick with this is that the New Testament uses lots of other words, too, to describe God's saving work in us. It uses words like regeneration, uses words like adoption, uses words like redemption, atonement, all this stuff. And if you're hoping to sort of fit together all of these theological concepts to make this perfect little stained glass window to say, this is how we see it, I hate to break it to you again, but it's not going to be quite that way. These terms and and, and these categories and these designations are helpful language for us, but but we have to realize that the story of God working, of God saving work, is bigger than what our terms can grab onto 
and categorize. I was thinking about this the other night, and I was talking with, with my wife, Holly, and um, it, it's a little bit like an aquarium. Anybody ever been to the Denver Aquarium? We went earlier this year for our, our daughter's, Sophia's birthday, and it was a nice experience, and you know, love that. If you've been to SeaWorld, or whatever, you've been to aquariums, and aquariums are great. They're a great way to experience things that we'd never otherwise experience, but an aquarium is quite a bit different than the ocean itself. And is it true that an aquarium can capture so many things that are true about ocean life? Yes. Would you say that an aquarium is accurate in the way that it depicts life in the ocean? Yes. But is an aquarium the ocean? No. And in that way, that's the best we are doing with theologies. We're saying, look, we've got these words, and are they true about Christ and his work? Yes. Do they help us understand what God has done, is doing in us? Yes, they help us. Are they useful to us? Totally. But is this the sum total of it, of the story? There's a little bit more. More that's different in essence? No. More that's going to be surprising and and radically? No. We've got the same essence of things. It's just that an aquarium can't compare to the ocean. And even our best categories in theology just can't capture the living dynamic work of God. Does that make sense? Is that helpful to you? Because the danger is we walk away from a talk like this and say, well, okay, great, I've got these watertight compartments, I've got this all figured out, this works great, and, you know, and the worst of it is you hear a talk like this and you say, well, I know I'm fine because I'm working through sanctification, I've already been justified, but so-and-so, I don't even know if they've ever been justified yet. And you get in this weird stuff and you start imposing on who's in the same, you know, you start marking notches on your salvation journey, you know. That's where it gets weird, when you run too far with this. But backing up and go, go and sort of returning to our point for tonight, and that's kind of the framework that we'll use, but the reason I felt like we, want, we should talk about justification tonight is because I do think we confuse the two. We confuse justification and sanctification a little bit. What I mean by that is, is, is there, there are a couple of key distinctives I want us to, to catch. And, and for one, it's this. Justification is a once, a one-time thing. It is a process that happens. It's a, it's a thing that happens. Sanctification is this ongoing journey. You and I will be involved in this journey, in this process of being made like Christ the rest of our lives. That doesn't mean we should slack off and say, well, I got 60 years to get this figured out. That doesn't mean that. But it is this sense of hope that, look, because we have been justified, that's why this process of being made like Christ can take place. The other key thing to kind of, if if you're setting in your mind, again, carefully, you know, with the caveat that these categories are helpful but not absolute The justification, when we talk about it in the way that I'm about to talk about it tonight, it is exclusively the work of God. It is God's work. So, well, yeah, but isn't faith involved? Yes, faith is how you receive it. In the same way that if you had a little soda drink from, you know, Wendy's or whatever, you have your Coke, and if somebody, if I bought you the Coke, the Coke is a free gift, but you get it through the straw. This, this thing of being justified is all of God's work, but we receive it through faith. It doesn't mean that our work is the faith. It just means that that's how we get to enjoy it. Does that make sense? 
Everybody okay so far? Sanctification, yes, is God's work, and that's the point about the message. We are clay, and we are branches, and all this stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Sanctification is also God's work, but this is where it involves our cooperation, which is why the past several weeks the emphasis has been so much on, okay, let me start by saying I cannot, and then let me start saying, God, help me pay attention to what you're doing, right? We, we use language like that for sanctification. But tonight when we talk about justification, we must be clear about this. This is the work of Christ all by himself. This is Christ in his magnificence, in his majesty. This is the beauty of the grace of God, the atoning work in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? What does this mean to be justified? And tonight I want to take us to a passage in the Old Testament and then give us two or three things, three things to kind of break down and say, okay, here, here's maybe some pieces of this that, that are helpful, that might be helpful to us in understanding it. Back in the Old Testament, there, everything that they did with regard to temple and sacrifices, I know it sounds weird when we read it, and I don't know if you've tried, you know, like, I admire people who... Um, who are committed to reading the Bible and getting a nugget out of it every day. I admire people like that because sometimes there are loads and loads of passages in the Old Testament where you're not going to get a nugget out of it. And a a little tip when you're reading the Old Testament, pay attention to the broad strokes of God's work versus the little itty bitty verses because sometimes you're reading these itty bitty verses about you know going to using the restroom outside the camp and all this stuff and you're like, God speak to me. God, speak to me. Why won't you speak to me? You know? and, and we need to, look, it, be patient when you're reading the Old Testament. It's not written uh, like, like Paul's letters where it's straight, fairly straightforward at least. Uh, we, we see God at work in the Old Testament by paying attention to the broad strokes of it, okay? But when we talk about the Old Testament system of temple and priest and sacrifice and all this stuff, it just sounds kind of weird. Because we don't, we don't, we, 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 if I were to describe a religion that involved animal sacrifices, you'd say, weird. But that's at the heart of the Jewish religion. But all of this stuff is God's way of communicating to Israel something about who he is and something about how atonement works. And what forgiveness, what price forgiveness comes at. There was this day in the Hebrew year that's the most holy day of all. It's the day, the day is called Yom Kippur. It's the day of atonement. On this day, the high priest would come before God and he would bring a, a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. The first thing he'd have to do is offer a bull to cleanse himself. You can read this all in Leviticus 16. It'll do more than make you fall asleep. And in Leviticus 16, we're told the, how things go on Yom Kippur. And the, pre, the high priest comes and he, and he sacrifices this, this bull and he cleanses himself. And then he goes into the most holy place. And he's got two goats. And this is an amazing scene because he goes in there and he's got tassels around his robe with bells on it and all this stuff. So that if they stop hearing bells ringing, they realize something happened this year. Maybe the high priest didn't cleanse himself. Maybe he did, you know, something happened. I don't hear bells. Pull him out. And they got a rope on his ankle. They pull him, you know. Gives a whole new meaning to come on, ring those bells, you know. Like they, they wanted to hear the bells ring in. 
when the high priest went in. There's so much in Leviticus 16 that speaks about Christ. All of it does. We can see Jesus in every line, every paragraph about this. I I said to you he takes two goats. The first goat that he takes, and we'll pick this up in verse 15, this is what he does with it. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And he's to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Probably the best New Testament book that that helps us understand this imagery and this metaphor that's being communicated in the Old Testament about priest and sacrifice and temple and all this stuff. The, the, the best interpreter for that metaphor is this New Testament book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 7 says this, talking about Jesus. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 7, verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This is like no high priest Israel ever had. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin. This is recalling Leviticus 16. And then for the sins of the people. No, no, no. With Jesus, it says this. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The first piece about what it means to be justified is this. Number one, our sin has been paid for. So, well, hey, that's obvious, right? Isn't that why we're all in church? We, we get this. Our sin has been paid for. There's a couple of possible images of God that you have when you think about your sin being paid for. Maybe you think of God as having anger and love as yin and yang, sort of the two equal and opposing forces that make up God's nature. He's angry, he's loving. He's angry, he's loving. And thank goodness the the last word was love. Is that it? Or do we have this image that God is angry at our sin and, and, whoa, Jesus stepped in and said, whoa, don't do it, Dad. What is our image of this when we say Jesus paid for our sin? Over the last several months, I've I've been reading through again the book of Deuteronomy, and it's striking to me how even in that day, God's love always leaks out over and above his anger at sin. That he's saying to Israel, look, I know you're, I, I'm giving you these commandments and I know you're going to fail every one of them. And yes, you're going to go into exile. I'm going to let nations carry you away and this is going to happen. That's gonna, you know, I know that's going to happen to you, but I want you to know that after the punishment and after all of that, I'm going to bring you back. In other words, God's love always overrides God's anger. Always. You may know the way the psalmist said it. Your anger lasts for a moment, but your favor for a lifetime. We need to cleanse our hearts and our heads of this picture of an angry dad or an angry God that the only reason he's not mad is because Jesus talked him out of it. Because that makes it funny when you pray our Father in heaven. It makes you think that he's still looking for reasons to be mad. But can you believe 
that the Father, Son, and Spirit all together conspired long ago that yes, sin was an offense, and yes, sin had angered God, but his love triumphed over his anger and found a way to rescue us without violating justice. And that way was Jesus. So when we say that Jesus has paid for our sin, we're saying that God has decided that anger would never be the last word. That his love would find a way to override it without violating justice. How? Because of Jesus. We're justified means that our sin has been paid for. Isn't that amazing? The second thing is kind of found in this metaphor of what Aaron does, the high priest does, with the second goat. So you get the first goat. Yeah, we've heard of sin offerings and all that. Okay, I got that. Leviticus 16, verse 20 to 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement from the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Now, I don't know if you've heard this scene described before, but this is where we, I imagine this is where we get the term scapegoat from. Because look what he does. He brings the live goat. And the goat's thinking, oh boy, I saw what happened to the other kid. You get that kid? Yeah. But he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Wow. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. Then the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Imagine the scene. The high priest, he comes out. He's like, oh, great. He made it out alive. Good. The first part's done. Phase two of Yom Kippur, the live goat. Places his hands on this live goat and says, something like, on you are all the sins of every man, woman, and child of the nation of Israel. It's on you. Now go. Get out of here. An amazing picture of not just the penalty being paid for, but the guilt being removed. The second thing that it means when we say we are justified is that our guilt has been removed. This is the piece that I am convinced we don't get. Because we come to church and we say, Jesus, oh, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. So thank you for forgiving me. And then you go home and the drive home and you're still thinking, but I did that. But I did that. But I did that. But to say that our blame, the guilt, is removed is to say that before God, you never did it. Now, that's remarkable. You mean to say that because of that, I don't need to carry guilt? That's right. It's one thing to hear the words, I forgive you. Think, okay, good, they're not, what, what do you think when you hear a person say, I forgive you? You think, oh, thank goodness they're not mad at me anymore, right? I forgive you. Today, Sophia and Nora got in a little fight, and they had to say sorry to each other, and Sophia goes, Nora, say, I forgive you. <laughs> you know, she wants to know, you're not mad at me anymore, right? I forgive you. She's four years old. So, okay, yeah, great. But there's something beyond this. It's not just, I forgive you, I'm not mad at you, it's, That guilt 
of doing that thing is not on you anymore. Counselors will tell you the effects of guilt on a person's life. Sit down with a counselor and talk to them about the people that they've sat with in their offices who've said, you know, ultimately the, way I, the reason I'm acting this way and the reason there's self-hatred or the reason is it, it, it kind of traces back to this sense that I've never believed that, the, that I'm not guilty. I may be forgiven, but I'm still guilty. I want to tell you tonight that to say that you are justified means that you're not guilty, that the guilt is taken away. Listen to Hebrews 9. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, but not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Crucified outside the city, maybe a living picture of the goat leaving the camp. Jesus carrying the sins. We read it. We heard it read from Isaiah 55. Placed on him. So the guilt is not ours. Can you believe that tonight? Can you believe that? It gets even better. Because as good as Yom Kippur is, it gives us those two pictures that our sins have been paid for and our guilt has been removed. But Jesus did something that nobody, no Jew could have expected he imparted to them his own righteousness. The way we say it is this, Christ's righteousness has become ours. Our sin's been paid for, our guilt's been removed, and now you're telling me that Christ's righteousness is somehow imputed, given to me, placed inside me? How? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to become sin. What exactly does that mean? I'm not sure. There's something mysterious about it, but I know this. The blame that was on me was placed on him and the righteousness that is Christ became mine. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us, listen to this, wisdom from God, God's brilliant wisdom. How? Are you going to get out of this? So you say that your love is stronger than your anger. You say that your love will override anger, but you can't violate justice. So how are you going to do this? By Christ laying down his life. The wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Christ is that for us. This, this little theological word, imputed, in terms of when you, when you say, well, okay, how did this all work? It's kinda, it comes up th- at least three times when we talk about the story of God's work. We talk about how Adam's sin and sinfulness was imputed to all of us, and so we 
are born with this bent, with this nature. We talk about how our guilt and our blame was imputed on Christ. It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that his righteousness gets imputed to us. It's all, all the metaphors we can think of kind of pale, but don't really work very well. But I do know, there, there is this example or picture that may be helpful. When you got married, if you're married, everything that was hers became yours and everything that was yours became hers. And for some of you, you're thinking, thank you, that was school loans, you know, from death. But all of the assets all of a sudden became the, uh, yours as well. You think, well, well but, but, but that doesn't make sense. I didn't earn that. That's right. But I didn't put in those hours of work for that money. You're right. But I didn't purchase it. But I didn't. You're right. How is it that it gets to be called mine? It just is. So, well, but, but, but Christ's righteousness. I could never be as righteous as Christ. I know. But I've, but I've messed up and I've made all these mistakes. And I, I know. But you're telling me that he took it on him and, and now I get all of his righteousness? Yes. How? It's amazing. Wayne Grudem in his book Systematic Theology says it this way as a one but very long sentence. It says, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us righteous. Wow. Wow. What does this mean? As we prepare, you know, we, we wind this down and get ready to take communion and come to the Lord's table. What, what does this mean? I think it means confidence. For a lot of you who are saying, who are evaluating your ability to approach God based on how good or bad your week has been. I know the feeling of coming to church and you, you kind of sit through the first two songs because you're clicking through how the week's been. Okay, now I'm good, you know. And I, obviously I believe in the power of confession. We're going to do it again tonight. We don't confess our sins, though, so that we can be re-justified. No. We confess our sins so that we can cooperate with the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in us. So that we can apply again forgiveness to the areas of our lives and become aware again of the brokenness inside of us and say, God, come into that area. Come into that place. Fix that. Work in that. We don't confess our sins again so we can be re-justified because we lost our justification. I think it means that there's a sense of joy. That now because you are justified, even though you will be disciplined by God, pruned like we talked about last week, You'll never be punished in the sense that we think of. That the full weight of the chastisement and punishment was on Jesus. That is amazing. The journey of sanctification, in a sense, then, is one of becoming who you already are in Christ. Christ has declared you this and now you're gonna, he's going to work in you to make you what you already are. Not on your own, no, 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 but because of Jesus. 
Maybe another way to say it is that the setbacks in your sanctification cannot undo your justification. (laughs) You're getting it. The setbacks in your sanctification cannot undo your justification. Do you understand the confidence then that I can have to say, God, I will confess. I will let you work in my, I will let you put the spotlight of your, of your Holy Spirit in search for me because I understand even if I failed this week, even if I've taken a couple steps backward in the sanctification thing, it does, it's okay because I'm still caught in your arms. I'm declared righteous. I am being made like you from a position of confidence and joy and trust in the love of the Father. That we're not working this out in this, in this place of, oh man, he's going to send me to hell if I do this this week and I got you. That is not the way we are living this out because we have been justified. When we talk about this, it the protest always rises up inside of us. Yeah, but. Yeah, but God cares about what I do and don't. Yes, he does. Well, yeah, but God cares then if I'm. Yes, he does care about how we live. I just want you to know that his work in us comes from this place of already having been declared righteous. It's done. There are many songs that angels can sing. I think angels can sing about God's holiness and God's worthiness, blessing and honor, glory and power. We get that in Revelation. But the other song you see in Revelation's glimpse, John's glimpse into heaven, the heaven that's going on now, even though we can't see it, is the song of the redeemed. I suggest that the song of the redeemed is a song of love. Because we know what it's like to be fallen, to be broken, to have been guilty. And we know what it's like for the Son of God to have said, I lay my life down. I'll put, take on me all their guilt. Give me the worst. Give me the worst. The murder. Name the worst sin in your mind. It was on him. He became it. So that you can become righteous. Bow your heads with me. There is only one response to this. If we were preaching on sanctification, you would say, well, you know, maybe our response is to, you know, see the areas in our life that God's working, you know, all that. But to this amazing truth about what it means to be justified, there's only one response. It's love. It's to say, God, I love you. God, I love you. God, thank you that before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Jesus, thank you that you took the penalty. You paid the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, more than that, you took away the blame that I don't have to carry guilt. I don't have to remind myself of things I've done or been or said or thought. 
You took it away. It's gone. The guilt is gone. And even more than that, you gave me your righteousness. What can we say to that? What can we do? We can even compare to that. So we say, I love you. We say, I love you.